Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his new book, Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders, Todd Miller draws upon two decades of reporting on the U.S.-Mexico border and similar contested boundaries around the globe, and he shares his experiences and encounters with climate refugees, members of indigenous communities, law enforcement, scholars, visionaries, and his four-year-old son. His book is published in the Open Media series of City Lights Books and brings Todd Miller to our show now. Welcome. Todd, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, I was I, I was on mute. Thank you, thank you very much, Leonard. It's very it's very nice to be here. This is your third book on the subject of borders. You wrote Border Patrol Nation, Storming the Wall, which received a 2018 Izzy Award for Excellence in Investigative Journalism and Empire of Borders. What got you started on this subject? Well, um, there's. I guess there's a long story, a short story, and a medium story. I'll just maybe I'll just go to the medium story. I I actually did grow up in um, on the border, but on the northern border, the Canadian border, mm-hmm. in Buffalo. Um, and while people might not think of the Canadian border, much of the Canadian border in terms of the enforcement that you might see on the U.S.-Mexico border, it still really influenced me to to look to wake up every morning and look out um, over the Niagara River and, and see Canada, another country. Um, and probably- But, but wait a minute, Todd. Would, Todd, don't you require a passport to get in and out of Canada these days? Yes, you do. That's you do. a recent As development, it, which, which we might get to a little while, but go ahead. Yeah, that that is true. When I was growing up there, I did not need, we did not need a passport to cross back and forth, but there have been many changes, many changes since, since I've been, I've grown up there since I was growing up. And, um, I mean, I've been, now I've been living in Tucson, Arizona, in the Southern, in the Southern Arizona borderlands for nearly 20 years. And, uh, before that I lived in Mexico. Um, well, actually, cumulatively, I've lived in Mexico six years, um, but I lived a year there uh, for a year before relocating to Tucson. And um, and and the the time I spent in Mexico really influenced me in many different ways. Of course, living in Mexico, I was able to see what was going on in Mexico, the political situation in Mexico, learning and learning Spanish, talking to people, learning about people crossing the borders, hearing stories uh, from many different people and their experiences of crossing the border. And this was in the, in the 1990s, the late 1990s. And, um, and I also, because of that experience of living outside of the border uh, of the U S borders, I began to be able to see uh, the United States from outside of its borders. I I often think of that as the most valuable thing. Well, the Oaxaca is pretty far from the America, the U.S. border. Yeah, Oaxaca, and I actually, I, 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 um, my first time I lived in Mexico, I lived in a place called San Luis Potosi. Um, Mm. the second time I, I lived in Oaxaca, and you're right, Oaxaca is much closer to the Guatemalan border. It's in southern Mm. Mexico. Um, and I know, I love it. I've been there. You've been to Oaxaca, yeah, many times. Really very beautiful place. Um, I lived in Oaxaca City and uh, 
when I was there, I worked for a, an organization called Witness for Peace, and we looked, we were looking really at a lot of U.S. policy issues and how they were impacting in Mexico, particularly southern Mexico, particularly economic policies such as as the North American Free Trade Agreement. And um, so I got to travel all over the all over the state of Oaxaca, to the to the coast, to the Sierra, to the Mixteca, the, like the different indigenous territories and to Chiapas as well. So that was quite quite an experience and really also impacted me and my thoughts about borders and, and eventually my, my journalism around borders. Should I be surprised that in 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, there were 15 border walls worldwide and today there are over 70, although uh, we should also point out that the Berlin Wall was intended to keep people in, not let people in. Right. Um, but to answer, yes, you should, it should, you should be surprised. Um, it's actually a statistic that not many people are aware of, um, that, uh, the, the, the expanse of, of borders around the world, the acceleration of the construction of border walls. True, true. They might, they might be a little different from the Berlin wall. And also each border wall is a little bit different in its own context. But this sort of growth of, of, of borders, of enforcing borders, and one thing to point out, too, is that two-thirds of those walls were constructed post-9-11. So you, mm -hmm. you're seeing kind of an increase of, of these border walls that kind of forms, when you start looking at it, you start seeing a, a more wide uh, global border apparatus. So have nationalism and xenophobia increased over those years? Well, certainly the idea of border enforcement, it, it thrives off of nationalism, it thrives off of xenophobia. We've, we've seen it quite clearly in the United States, right, with, especially the, the last four years with the Donald Trump administration, this kind of pounding of the xenophobic hammer, mm. um, this sort of, we need, you know, America first nationalism and, and the logic then you know, the subsequent logic is, oh, we need to enforce our borders, we need to protect our borders. And you, it's hard to say sometimes whether it's, because um, when you look at nationalism, there's certainly a, a degree of it that comes from the, the people in a country, but there's also a degree of it that comes, that's kind of fabricated, that's, that's promoted through, through different channels, that's, that would be promoted, like in the case of borders, might be promoted we need to build a wall because of this. So it's hard to say, you know, exactly what it, what that is. But I would say that that increase in borders, you know, goes hand in hand with an increase of of some sort of nationalism, whether whether it's created or it's genuine. Well, he was tapping into something I'm sure that was already there, but it was one of the major issues that got him elected. And people at his rallies chanted, "Build the wall." Yeah, that's certainly true. I, I remember I went to uh, um, uh, Mike, not Donald Trump, but Mike Pence uh, rally in Tucson, where I live in Tucson, Arizona. And um, I was there on a reporting trip and, you know, pe people were, they sat down throughout his whole talk. And that at the point where he said, we're going to build a wall, we're going to build a big wall. It was quite amazing to see that people would just jump, just leapt up, uh, stood up and, and with a, a very loud applause. Um, 
And so that's, that's entirely correct. It, it was centerpiece to the Trump presidency, um, to the Trump campaign, the campaign in 2016. Uh, and, and uh, from what I can, what I've read, you know, looking at uh, some of the reporting that's done from the White House, that was something that he kept going back and back to again and again, because he felt like his constituency really resonated with his constituency. Well, does it matter whether or not uh, the uh, the people involved work or live near the border? Does it matter if people? Well, um, I mean, um, for example, I don't live close to a border. I live in New York City. I guess the, the border here is um, is ships and planes, but uh, which we can also get into. But uh, it's right. different when you actually have a visible border, uh, and and you write that people infected with what you call wall sickness, have a binary worldview of us versus them, exceptional versus inferior, good versus bad, innocent versus criminal, legal versus illegal. Either you think exactly like us or you're the enemy. So those are people who could live all over the country. You don't have to be close to a border. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say, um, and wall sickness, the idea, the concept of wall sickness first started in, again, just think of the Berlin Wall. Um, it was psychologists looking, psychi psychiatrists looking at people who were feeling a sense of narrowness, who were feeling a sense of extra phobias um, because they lived so close to the wall. And, and uh, so in that sense, there's, there's this kind of psychology. Um, what I would say with the extension of it, which which you were you were just laying out, this kind of binary of good versus bad, this uh, innocent versus criminal, legal versus illegal, that is uh, maybe spun off of the idea of wall sickness, but it's definitely something, it's, it's strange because if you look at people that live in the borderlands, for the most part, like there was a Pew uh, poll done a couple years ago about if people in the borderlands supported more of a wall being built and overwhelmingly the answer was no the people mm -hmm. that live and look at the border are often most opposed to the continuing of uh of enforcement of it but yet at the same time you have a kind of border i guess you could put it you could put it in a number of different ways i'll call it a border patrol mentality this sort of mentality that you know the u.s border patrol its agents the enforcement apparatus is meant to to promote, and that is exactly this like good versus us versus them sort of mentality, and that certainly doesn't doesn't. It's not just for the people in the borderlands. In fact, I would say the people in the borderlands are just more maybe psychologically affected by it, whereas a sort of more nationalist or a, a, if if you were to go into other places in the United States, you might have that that binary that you are describing more pronounced. And um, I would say that you're right. It, it definitely is probably all over the country. You say that indoctrination on borders through the political parties and mainstream media impedes any serious discussion about their function. So do, are we really unclear as to what the border walls will do? Well, yeah, it's well, it's it's clear the strategy that's been in place, what they're meant to do. And for the strategy, to look at the border strategy, and this strategy has been in place for 25 years. You have to go back to the mid-1990s, uh, the Bill Clinton administration, 
and Operation Hold the Line, Operation Gatekeeper, Operation Safeguard, those operations started what is known as the prevention through deterrence strategy. And if you wanna know about the prevention through deterrence strategy, you could just look up a border patrol memorandum from 1994 that talks about the mortal danger that, that um, well, here, this is a strategy. You, you put enforcement, these operations, concentrated agents, on the actual borderline in cities, in urban areas, which were traditional crossing places. So you put border agents, you put walls. So the construction of, of, of walls, what happened in, these, in the mid 1990s, for example, in Nogales in 1994 was when the first 15 foot wall went up. And, uh, and those, the, the agents, the wall, and then reinforced by technology, all go hand in hand to then blockade these, these urban areas, areas that were of, of traditional transit, and then would force people to circumvent those areas. And if you look at the Border Patrol Memorandum in 1994, it says it would put people in mortal danger. So the purpose of those walls, the purpose, the, the original purpose and the purpose that continues to this day is to create a part of a border wall system. And the system, is effectively in the same strategy. They have not changed the strategy since the 1990s. And um, so it's a prevention through deterrence strategy. And that's why now 25 years later, there have been at least 8,000 remains of people found in the desert with thousands of families mm. looking for um, lost loved ones, of people who have crossed the border and you, you're, not, you're not able to carry enough water, you're not able to carry enough food. It's it's really difficult to get through the desert unscathed, and that's and that was that's very much an intrinsic part of the strategy. So U.S. border and immigration enforcement budgets have grown and uh, under a number of presidents, obviously not just Trump, both Democrats and Republicans. And but weren't there already over 650 miles of walls and barriers on the border before it became an issue during the 2016 presidential campaign? That is true. That is 650 miles of, ball, of walls and barriers um, that were mainly that were created, erected during what the 1990s when I, the during the Clinton administration. But then in, in 2006, there was another bill that was passed known as the Secure Fence Act. And and that one, people might be surprised to know that Senator Joe Biden voted for that. Um, as well as Hillary Clinton, as well as Barack Obama. Um, and that, and the Secure Fence Act then built an, an additional 600, nearly, well, after that construction was complete, there was 650 miles of walls and barriers. And then on top of that, the technology, the sort of virtual wall that's, that's been built, there's been countless billions put into that, to, to that part of it. What, surveillance cameras, man-hunting radar, drones, and other technologies that track people. And then you point out that agents have shot and killed nearly 100 people on the border zone since 2003 when George Bush was president. Exactly. So, And, and then that's an interesting thing because you look at um, the border, the number of Border Patrol agents when you go back to the mid-1990s with the start of prevention through deterrence, 4,000 agents in 1994. And then by the end of the Clinton administration, there was nearly 9,000. 
Mm-hmm. And by the end of the Bush administration, we're, we're nearing 20,000, almost doubling the, board, the force of the Border Patrol. And by 2012, 21,000 agents. So, you, so all of a sudden, you have five times more Border Patrol agents than you did in 1994. And you're right. You, there's, there's many more. These are the, 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 the shootings and the killings that, that have happened. Those are the only the ones that we know about. So much happens you know, out in the desert, they don't carry body cameras, the border patrol. So, so there are things that undoubtedly, undoubtedly have happened way away from the cameras, way away from the public scrutiny, um, just because of the isolated nature of, of the work of the border patrol. And so, yeah, that's, so you're, you're looking at this just massive, uh, increase of this border apparatus and the shootings and the killings are just one aspect showing how how truly violent it is. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Todd Miller, whose latest book is Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders, published by the in the open media series of City Lights books. You mentioned President Biden. President Biden criticized the Trump administration's immigration policies and promised to raise the refugee cap during the election campaign. But then uh, not long ago, on April 15th, he issued a determination that maintained the admission ceiling at 15,000. Why do you think he changed his mind? He, so it's, it's really, really important. And this is just one point on the re, how the refugee cap was remain remains the same under the Biden administration as Trump. It's really important to scrutinize what President Biden is doing around border and immigration issues. Um, of course, like the promises, like there's a the promises, um, the, even the executive orders coming out of the gate uh, are quite, you know, probably are appeasing to to anybody that who's interested in immigration rights. Um, the reunification of families who were separated under the Trump administration, the claim that uh, he will not build one more foot of wall. Uh, th- those those claims, um, whilst, while there's probably some truth to them, uh, need to be scrutinized for multiple reasons. Um, one is one one quite clear one is that around the wall, the not one more foot of wall. Actually, now now the Biden administration is announcing that they might be building more wall to fill in the gaps. Um, also, also um, I, I separately from this book, I did a report looking at the 2020 campaign, looking at companies in the border industry for the Transnational really Institute, to, right? Yeah, with the Transnational Institute. And we took, we looked at some of the top contractors. We, we had 14, 13 companies that were top contractors uh, of Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And we really crunched the numbers in terms of campaign contributions, campaign contributions going to both uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And I was expecting, what I expected was that it would be probably 50-50, maybe a little bit more to Trump than Biden, but I wasn't sure. And the result of it was that we found that there were three times more um, campaign contributions given by companies of the border industry, particularly technology companies, but also private prison companies, um, 
to Joe Biden than to Donald Trump. And so those sorts of, that really is a lens through which I'm looking at my thinking around the Biden administration, what to expect, the the kind of uh, rhetoric of no, not build one more foot of wall, but it's always accompanied by, we're going to divert that money to technology. And uh, when you study the border and how the border system works, well, technology is a part of the border, what they call, if you go to border patrol, they call it the border wall system. It's partly border wall, partly agents and partly technologies. And the the emphasis on technologies, like you mentioned, drones, high-tech surveillance, uh, towers and cameras, cameras that can be see 7.5 miles away, cameras that can see at night, thermal energy cameras, ground sweeping radar, um, predator drones with a Vader manhunting radar, like you mentioned, that va- that that uh, radar count comes from Northrop Grumman, who had, they deployed that radar in Afghanistan, so you can see kind of the import of of technologies that have been used in war zones and military U.S. military operations, and you put all you put all that together, and now I see a Biden administration with a twenty five billion dollar border and immigration enforcement budget. And I should stress that that $25 billion, you go back to 1994 again, because I keep going back to that year because that's the the beginning of prevention through deterrence. It's a $1.5 billion budget. So when Trump takes office in 2017, it's already up to 20 billion. So you can imagine this arsenal Mm -hmm. of technologies, of walls, of agents that Trump had at his disposal before he even set foot in the White House. And now, now the Biden administration, has 20, a $25 billion budget for this year in uh, 2021 to that and with this sort of promise that there's going to be even more technology. And so those are the things that I, you know, while looking at the rhetoric, looking, trying to look, there have been some camps that have been closed in Mexico and people have been reunified. So looking at some of the positive things um, from an immigration rights standpoint, but also looking at this broader arc of um, how this border apparatus has developed over decades now and what the tendencies seem to be with the Biden administration and also the privatization and the involvement in private companies in, in this whole thing. Now, you begin your book with the story of meeting a desperate, dehydrated man named Juan Carlos in the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona, about 20 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border. Had he entered the U.S. illegally? Well, I, that I don't know. Um, I, so I, so this is what happens. I, I happened. I was driving down the road. Um, I was coming from a camp, kind of like a camping trip up in a mountain range. And I get down and I, I'm rumbling down a dirt road. It's a pretty isolated area. Um, I'm the Tona Autumn Nation, which is a Native American reservation mm-hmm. uh, that's right on the U.S.-Mexico border. The Tanatham, for people that don't know, people of the Tanatham live on both, you know, traditionally live on both sides of the border. So the border really crossed through um, the traditional land of the Tanatham. So I'm driving down, rumbling down this road, and all of a sudden this man steps out from the side of the road. He steps out of the desert. So there's lots of saguaro cactus and barrel cactus. And I see him waving his hands. So I... I have like, I you know, having traveled and been in the desert and on the borderlands for years, this is not the first time this has happened. 
Um, I do not know if, if, if he crossed the border without papers, right? Um, because I don't ask him, right? He just, I, he, come, he came up to, to the side of the car. I rolled down the window. I asked him if he wanted water. Um, and he immediately said, yes. I gave him a, a bottle of water, which he chugged down almost in one gulp. Um, I gave him some food that I had. And, but I didn't, of course, I didn't, like, I didn't ask him where, like, if he had crossed the border. I just kind of figured that that was the case because there's so many people in that situation of walking through the desert for days and becoming, and an, an, an they, they, they wind up in distress. They wind up thirsty, dehydrated. And um, so then I asked him, well, is there anything else I can do for you? And he said, can you give me a ride? Hmm. And that was that moment when he asked me can about give, giving him a ride was was a moment. It was interesting because I came down from that mountain range and from the tops of the mountains, you couldn't even see the border. Right. So you have the sense of a of a borderless world and that, you know, a kind of global consciousness almost. And then all of a sudden he asked me for a ride and I immediately became conscious of where I was. I was 20 miles from the border. There, it was in an area where there was lots of roving border patrol agents and, and green striped vehicles. There is lots of those cameras that I was describing with the high tech, um, they could see miles and miles away. They were around scope trucks, ATV patrols, drones possibly going overhead. The, the thing is I couldn't see any of it. I just knew it was there, right? From mm -hmm. these decades of studying this. and. And it didn't even matter if I was being watched or not. I was, was kind of the panopticon of Michel Foucault's, the French philosopher's panopticon, this idea that whether you're being watched or not, you feel like you're, you're actually being watched. And the reason why I felt all of this all at once was that one, you know, when he asked me for a ride and that would be a felony, right? If I were to transport him in, in, in my vehicle, it would be a felony. I would face prison time. And, and so there was first this kind of awareness of where I was and then the kind of in, being infuriated. I was infuriated that I had to think that way, that I had to look at him and think, well, you know, we're speaking in Spanish where, you know, you've been walking through the desert. You, he told me he's from Guatemala. He had brown skin, you know, so there's a racial element to it. And I'm infuriated because I have to think of all that stuff. Like, for example, if it had been a white person, uh, maybe maybe that I wouldn't even have to think of it because Border Patrol relies so heavily, and this this goes back to even court cases throughout throughout for decades, relies on racial profiling, right? And so I had to like put all this into my mind, and 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 it's it's literally infuriating because the person, you know, I know that people die in the desert. I I the 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 act of giving somebody a ride who's in distress who might be you know, and you might be even facing a, a death circumstance is it would be like con a common human value, right? You would naturally do that. You would naturally give somebody a ride. It's, it's a natural act of kindness. Because as you, as you point out, you said it would be it would be a crime to leave somebody there knowing uh, that doing so might lead to their death. Exactly. It's the opposite, like leaving. So that's the thing, like, by transporting him, I have to contemplate that being a crime. And really, the crime was leaving him there, right? It would be the it would be to leave him there. And so that it was it was that hesitation, that kind of meditation on 
on these years of reporting, this meditation on, you know, all I've been taught all my entire life is to help a person out. And it's just a natural impulse. And this is stymied by the very border apparatus, by the codes of border security, by every, by all this. And that's what really led for, for the sort of meditation in, in, uh, and the consultation that you described at the very beginning where I talked to you know, so many different people from philosophers and visionaries to religious people to um, a border patrol agents about the, the border and, and, um, and what it is and what it means. And, um, and, and it really was this, this moment that led to the book, Bill Bridges, Not Wealth. Now, Arizona is a red state. Does it matter in cases like this? Or would the situation have been similar if you were in New Mexico or California? Blue it would states. have been similar because it's federal, it's federal mm -hmm. law. So that's, it's all border stuff. Like the border patrol is a federal agency. They work with federal laws. So it doesn't even matter if I'm in California or New Mexico, um, or it, the the actual state politics in Arizona really are just the second layer on that. Mm. In the sense of the border patrol and border policy, don't matter as much. You mentioned the indigenous group that uh, traditionally lived in the Sonoran Desert, the Tohono O'odham, um, and and that they live on both. Uh, sides of the board with Mexico have current policies affected members of the tribes, or are there treaties in place that allow them to to cross back and forth? The, it has very very much affected the Tonatan, the border, the border, everything about the border from the inception of the border in the in southern Arizona, the Sonoran Desert, the Tonatan territory. Um, this this was actually a part of the United States that was not designated after the Treaty of Guadalupe, Guadalupe Hidalgo after the Mexican-American War in 1848. So there's a separate thing called the Gadsden Purchase. And the Gadsden Purchase, it was pretty much Southern, it's Southern Arizona, taking a chunk of Southern Arizona with the idea of creating, having land for the, for the Pacific Railroad. And, um, and this is Tana Atom territory, but of course, in in the quote unquote purchase, I, I say that in quotes, was because it was kind of a forced at the gunpoint. Mexico was told that they have to purchase this this mm. the, that the United States would be purchasing this land, and but the Tana Atom were not involved. So the border, there's just there's, there's stories of the inception where Tana Atom elders came out to look at the surveyors who were drawing the border and saying, "What are you doing?" Our land, our people live hundreds of miles that way and pointing out into what is now Mexico, hundreds of miles in all these directions. And here you are, uh, you know, designating a border. And that really just started it. Um, for a long time, people could cross back and forth. And really what people refer to as the post 9-11 era as when things really changed on the Tonopin Nation. I mean, there were border patrol on the nation before that. But the post 9-11 and post 9-11 is really important to think about because just there was a huge influx of, of agents, of technologies, of um, expanding from the cities. So the, so people were funneling, you know, with the prevention of deterrence, people were coming through the Tonawatha Nation, which is a lot of desert and desolate areas. And so Border Patrol just started coming in more and more and into what is a sovereign nation, but 
kind of not, right? Because national security, and that's what, especially in post 9-11 era, counterterrorism, all that, national security trumps everything else. So next thing you know, now you, you drive in Pan Autumn's territory and there's in the nation and there's sometimes more border patrol going through than there are local residents. Um, now, now, like almost everybody on the Tonawata Nation has had some sort of experience with the border patrol. I remember ACLU went there in, like five years ago and did a town hall and asked how many people, there was like a hundred people present, how many people have been, had a, had a bad experience with the border patrol and every single person raised their hand, like a hundred people. Um, and, and, the, and it goes from like people being spotlighted in the back of their cars, being tailgated to people being pulled out of their cars, being maced, being pepper sprayed, um, house invasions, people right along the border talk about border patrol entering their homes in the middle of the night. And then there's checkpoints. You can't go off the nation without going through a checkpoint. And then people coming from the Mexican side where it had been a free crossing and it still is in some places, it's becoming more and more limited, more and more regulated, but there's more and more border patrol questioning people. So it's more and more difficult to just cross back and forth. Um, even if you have a Tonatum tribal card, which is supposed to allow you to get back and forth without any impediments. So it has had a, a huge impact on people in the, in the, in the nation and, um, and it's, to this day. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with Todd Miller, whose latest book is Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders from City Lights Books. Um, now, uh, we, we mentioned that walls have been going up all over the world in, in countries like Libya, Italy, Turkey, Greece, Syria, Somalia, Bangladesh, uh, the occupied Palestinian uh, territories. Uh, is this all the, the legacy of, of past wars? Oh, the, the, well, the, the walls going up all over the world. I, I mean, there's, there's one, one thing, like if you look at the 70 walls, um, uh, one of my, one of my books actually looked at, uh, how the United States is part of it's like one big part of its border strategy now is ex what they call expanding the border, extending the border. So if you go to the Mexico Guatemalan border, you see a lot of, um, United States resources. There's a lot of trainings that are going on. You go to the Guatemalan border with Honduras, the same thing is happening. In fact, there was just an announcement that more money was going to Guatemala for border, to, to boost, boost its border fortification. And I see it, you know, when you look at the U.S. and the European Union is, is doing similar things, kind of this, what they call externalization, which means that the EU is giving lots of money to Turkey. Turkey's built a wall between Turkey and Syria. Um, they give money to Libya, they give money to Morocco, uh, what they call the buffer countries and the sort of extension. So 
So it's almost like when you look at the border, the border walls and the border apparatus and how they're how they function and where they're placed. It's it's almost what I see it as is 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 uh, almost a, showing the divide between the global north and the global south. Um, the the um, which goes to many factors, war like being one of them, one significant one for sure. Like you can look at Jordan's border with Syria and Iraq and both of those, there's all kinds of surveillance technology be, being put on by the Raytheon Corporation actually, who got a contract <laughs> through a program of the, in the United States uh, from the Department of Defense to build these, these surveillance systems. Um, and you can see it going right up against, you know, where people are displaced in war situations. And, but other places, you see the walls going up against where people are being displaced because of the changing climate. And, uh, and, and um, in other places, there's lots of economic dispossession. In many places, there's all three, you know, coming together at once. Like so Guatemala. Kind of like Exactly, like Guatemala. Perfect example um, with the sort of the droughts that are happening with the climate um, in what's known as the dry corridor, the, the, the systemic marginalization of people where more than 60 or even 70% of the population lives in poverty. And then this, this legacy of war, um, of, of conflict and an oppression um, of, a, of a 36 year long uh, civil war that only ended in 1996 and its aftermath is still, you still see it present. And so you have this kind of converging, what Christian Parenti, the sociologist, calls a catastrophic convergence of many different factors. And where, where, where it's the most pronounced, then you see the borders almost going up there under, like it's as if the borders understand there is a displacement crisis. Like what you, you hear a lot about talk about the border crisis. Well, um, like Harsha Walia, who just, who just wrote this great book called Border and Drool, that she goes, she makes it, she has a whole chapter titled, It's Not a Border Crisis, It's a Displacement Crisis. And that's exactly what I, I think Harsha hits the nail on the head. And the borders come out to where the displacement crisis, crises are at their sharpest. And it seems like that, that seems to be the rhyme and reason. You said that you interviewed border agents. What did they tell you? Did, did, the, do they all support the current policies? So in interviewing the individual agents, and I've been interviewing individual agents since my first book, Border Patrol Nation, I have to say that it's, it's been very interesting because you talking to individual agents is much different than, than talking with a public information officer. And I say that because if you contact the Border Patrol and you say, I want to interview somebody, they, will, they have a designated person, a PIO, public information officer, who is trained to talk to you, trained to bring up certain points. And so what you gotta, what I've done over the years is go outside of that and try to talk to as many agents as possible outside of that sort of controlled environment. And when I've done that, I've just found that there's all kinds of, it's, there's a lot of unevenness. And, and I think, you know, there's, there's the stories you hear about agents and, and, um, you know, there's been so many stories of, of just blatant racism or, or you like text, you know, like text messages from agents using derogatory or racist terms. And, uh, and you describe, 
And you describe one border agent chastising members of a family that were talking through uh, a barred wall and ridiculing them by barking at the group. That is exactly true. Um, in fact, one of the first, scene, first scenes that I write about in, in Bill Bridges is what is a normal scene on, on the border. And I was just at the border wall um, with, with some friends and we were, and there happened to be a family that was just below us. It was right, it was December 26th, so right after Christmas. And um, the family, there's like probably eight people and or maybe nine or 10. And there's some people on the Mexican side, some people on the United States side, and they were talking through the, the bollards. The bollards are the bars on the wall. And immediately there's where we were and above us, there's always a border patrol agent sitting there at. That's part of the strategy, the actual, you know, strategy of putting agents right on the border. So they sit their X. What they do, what that means is they sit there for eight hours in this mm. one place and they just look into Mexico. But this agent kept watching this family. And then the agent like floored, really made a scene of it, floor, you know, hit his gas pedal really hard and came down the, the hill and just came to this, 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 like dramatic stop which like gravel went everywhere and the family's standing there you know just i i would guess i don't know what they were talking about but i would guess it was like what people always it's always loved ones coming together that are separated by the border and this is in the holiday season so they might have been getting together for a holiday chat i don't know you know i don't know what they were talking about but it didn't seem like they were doing anything else but talking but but then they agent and this is and this is a typical thing like the agent comes out, like starts ye really yelling at the family. They look at him warily. He, he then gets back in his vehicle and goes back up the hill. And then this repeated itself several times while we were there. Um, and, uh, and this is just like this, the, the typical thing. It was almost, you know, when I was thinking of the term wall sickness, it was almost that term was it was almost like the wall sickness had grown into something even more just by looking at the agent and how he's he was um interacting with his family um, but some of them are touched uh you talk about an agent's epiphany when he watched an injured teenager die yeah and that to me that's one of the most profound stories in the book and this really goes to the unevenness like there's an agent like i just described and then there's a there's um there's other agents who have all kinds of different um ways of thinking about the border patrol in this in this particular the agent i described who who um ends up a uh, a boy or a, a, a um young man dies in his arms um that that story was one of the most profound stories that i've ever heard and in terms of even of of the empathy of the agent himself. So what happened was that that the agent was following a, a call from dispatch. He went up a hill. He saw that there was footprints and he was going to follow the footprints. But then when he got out of his vehicle, somebody came up the hill, um, a man who was in distress and uh, the agent decided to follow him down into a ravine. And at the bottom of the ravine was the man's brother. And the man's brother was, was lying in the man's cousin's arm arms who was rocking him gently and it was obvious that the, the the young man was was in terrible condition that he might even be 
he might almost be about to die. And so what so what happened was that that the agent started to to radio on um, you know calling for a helicopter and then they figured out that the helicopter couldn't drop down into the ravine so they had to get the the young man up to a place where the helicopter could land. And while they were doing that, he um he clasped the elbows with with the brother to form kind of a bridge or like a stretcher, a human stretcher with their with their with their arms and their hands. But it was so hot that day and their their hands started to slip. So so they're carrying up the, the young man. The young man is now showing lots of signs of this of distress. There's a black bile coming out of his mouth. And all this and all of a sudden they touched hands while they were while they were going up the ravine. And the way the Border Patrol agent describes it he first said it was strangely intimate, right, to be holding hands with this with the brother of this young man. And then he said he lost his sense of who he was. For there was a long moment or several moments where he forgot he was a border patrol agent and he started looking at the young man as if the young man were his own brother. Mm-hmm. And this happened this went on for, for a moment and then his, his walkie talkie crackled and he came back and he and he turned he came back and he was a border patrol agent again. Um, but the, that sort of description really fueled what happened next. And, and, um, and it, it, I described this much, it's a much longer passage in the book, but he ends up, the, the boy, the young man ends up dying, dying. They found out that he probably died in their arms as they were going up the ravine. And, um, and he, the border patrol agent was very distressed. He actually wrote poetry about it, um, which he showed me. And then he um, he went to he went to uh, out to a bar with other agents and tried to drink it off. And the agents said, "Don't you know this is just part of the border game." And then the next day, uh, the super a supervisor called them and said, "Don't worry, they were we found out they were drug mules." And when he when he told when he when when the supervisor said that. The agent, while I was interviewing, looked at me and said, "What did? It, what do I care? You know?" And so, what did he care that they were, you know, maybe drug, quote unquote, drug mules, which probably meant they were, they thought that they were lugging, you know, maybe a 15, 50 pound bag of marijuana. And then to end the story, he talked. All, all of a sudden, he, he smelled marijuana coming up from his marijuana. Of course, something that's illegal in most places now, or many places. But in Arizona, where this all happened, it's now legal. But he's a waft of marijuana um, came up, and he and he he smelled it from his neighbor, from the below the neighbor that lived below him. And then that's when he said, "What am I? What am I even doing? Like this is just so everything. This is absurd. Like I just a boy, our young man died in my arms, and this is why, right? And so I that sort of that story." Um, also goes into a lot of things, but also how the the border patrol and many of its agents are just, they don't come in with any sort of ideology. The ideology is inculcated with them. They're trained, they're they're kind of indoctrinated to think a certain way, but a lot of agents are not inclined to think this way. I've talked with many who are dissent, but they are still agents, they get a good salary, they have families, and they don't want to leave the the force, and so there's that part of it too. And I think that speaks to like a bigger systemic pr- 
problem with with the with the border apparatus how you you have to fit into it and a lot of agents don't actually fit into it you're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is Todd Miller, whose latest book is Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey, World Without Borders. And uh, you ask for years, I'm quoting, I've wondered what would happen if a group of people simply showed up at the wall with chainsaws and just began taking it down. After all, it's an impediment to connection. Its very removal is the creation of a bridge you also uh, point out that if you turn a wall on its side, you have a bridge. But, uh, you know, I'm sure there are many people who are listening now who are saying, uh, you know, some of the people who want to cross the borders are criminals and terrorists. And, and then there are COVID-19 concerns as well. Don't we need to do something to protect the uh, the American public? Um, that's, uh, so when you, look, when you look at the the border apparatus, like for example, since 9/11, um, the, with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the the priority mission of of CBP or which is the parent Customs and Border Protection, which is the parent agency of the Border Patrol, has been counterterrorism and stopping weapons of mass destruction from crossing the border, and there has been absolutely zero cases of that. Um, happening that that have been recorded um and and so uh but what what has happened using that justification is all these this influx of money of budgets um of uh of you know this this massive building of of the apparatus that that we've seen and um the, and, and wait wait just thing. let me interrupt for a second and so some of those monies could be going to doing other things like combating climate change, which is one of the causes of what we're discussing. Exactly. So, so what? So we look at the look at all this money, and again, twenty five billion CBP and ICE for two thousand twenty one. It was twenty five billion last year. So start doing the. You can start adding up all these billions and billions of dollars. Um, that have gone into this border and immigration apparatus. We're told, like, just kind of like you pointed out, that the problems are, you know, the problems to our security are somebody on the other side of this wall that's going, people that are going to come and get us or take something from us. Well, yeah. They're, they're drug dealers or well, whatever. The, Criminals. I mean, that's what we're told, right? Yeah. Like, on the other side of the border, there's, like like this the story I just shared of of uh of the border patrol agent who's who they were apparently drug dealers the 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 young man who died in his in his arms right and uh um but at the same time if you look at if you 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 can parse out all all these sorts of things like drug drug dealers or how do drugs get across uh, um how does a transnational drug operation work is it just people on one side of the border or does it rely on 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 elements on all sides of the border um what and talking about criminality there's so many studies about looking at um undocumented communities in the united states how crimes lower in in those sorts of communities um there's there's just like countless studies that out there really that i i do list them off in the book, we don't have the time to go through all. Of no, them, in fact, we in fact we've run out of time, and we can't get to all sorts of things like your discussion of empathy and religious traditions. But 
Uh, it's a fascinating subject, and you've been a great guest. And I want to thank you, Miller, who lives in Tucson, Arizona, lived and worked in Oaxaca for many years, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, San Francisco Chronicle, Guernica, Al Jazeera. Uh, his new book, his fourth, is what we've been discussing. It's called Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to the World Without Borders. It's published in the open media series of City Lights Books. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a, an eye-opening conversation. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. If you would like Leonard Lopate at Large and all the other great programs on WBAI to keep coming to you, we need your help to keep it going. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring to you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And, and a big thanks to everyone who's helping to keep us on the air with their generosity. And we, um, again, the number one more time, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. That we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when our favorite home repair experts, Alvin and Lawrence Hubel, will discuss simple projects we can complete while we continue to be stuck at home. And of course, we'll also be taking your calls. So we'll see you then.